Hello and welcome to the APAC file, the joint bi-weekly podcast of Free 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 the Liberty and the Wilson Center focusing on Pakistan and Afghanistan. I'm Mohammed Tahir, Ready Free Free the Liberty's media manager and host of the APAC file podcast here in Washington, D.C. A military persecutor, a court worker, a doctor, a journalist, human rights and democracy activist. These are some of the few among the growing list of people who are brutally and selectively murdered in Afghanistan just within weeks. The latest among the casualties is Bismillah Adil Aymak, who became the first journalist to be murdered only two weeks into the new year. Earlier, one of my own colleague, Mohammed Elias Dai, the reporter for the Radio Azadi, the Afghan service of Radio Free of Radio Liberty, was also killed in an explosion that was placed in his car. These attacks are apparently a sign of sophisticated targeted killings that are directed against members of a small but active civil society in Afghanistan. In this episode of APAC File podcast, we are here to discuss what is this all about, why it is happening now, who is behind it, what seems to be their ultimate goal, and what impact it is having on society. To discuss all these, I'm joined by Mujib Khilwatkar, Chief Executive Officer of NAI, an Afghan NGO supporting open media in Kabul, Alia Iftikhar, Senior Asia Researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Alia is joining us from New York. Mariam Wardek, Journalist and the Head of the Women Advocacy Initiative called Her Afghanistan. Mariam is joining us today from Kabul. And Michael Kugelman, Senior South Asia Fellow and the Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Asia Programs in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. So, Mujib, let me start with you. Uh, so tell us, please, what's going on I mean, with these killings? Earlier, I described this as a targeted killing. Is it how you see it? The situation that's going on now in, in Afghanistan and in Kabul it is uh, defined for each and every media worker, civil society workers, as a tough situation and dangerous situation. The target killings are going on, if not every day, every week. We are receiving tough threats from different groups. And most of the media people are wondering to see what would be the future and how even they could escape from the sin. So the situation is, I, I see the situation like this. Mm-hmm. Mujib, in the meantime, your voice is cutting off. Maybe you need a little bit strong Wi-Fi. While I invite other guests, please uh, look into this if there's anything you could do with that. We definitely like to hear what you have to say. So, Alia, Bismillah was the latest victim. Earlier, one of my own colleagues, I said, Dai was murdered in Helmand province of Afghanistan. A female journalist, uh, Maywant, was killed in eastern Afghanistan just a couple of days ago. When you look into these victims and the ones that I, I have not mentioned, uh, what stands out to you? I think what stands out is how many targeted killings we've seen in just the past two months. And like you said, you know, there's Malala, there's your own colleague Ilyas Dai, there was Rahmatullah Nixa, then, then just on the first day of this year, Bismillah Adil Aymak. And these are journalists from different parts of Afghanistan. These are journalists, many of whom had been receiving threats prior to their killing. But I think 
what really stands out is how many have happened and then the lack of accountability unfortunately there have been some arrests but we don't have significant details on the arrest there's very little transparency in the accountability process from the Afghanistan government so all of those combined and then you know we're not necessarily seeing a specific trend here either in terms of who exactly or where exactly a journalist could be targeted. And I think that's certainly adding to the environment of fear. Mm. Uh, Maryam, you are also a journalist and you are currently joining us from Afghanistan and you went there after some time, uh, especially talking about media. When you compare the environment with your last visit, what has changed? Well, to clarify, I come back and forth the past every three months I'm able to return back to Afghanistan. And from my last visit to this visit, there's a strong gloom of fear amongst the public, especially more so amongst uh, the women. And the gloom doesn't only reside on the responsibility of the insurgents. It is also with the harsh treatment that the government institutions are enforcing. As um, you've mentioned earlier, I have an organization called Her Afghanistan, and my organization has over 4,900 members in over 19 provinces. And when I communicate with these members, and these members are young females ranging from the age of 18 on to 32. And when I communicate with them, aside from being constantly fearing uh, the threats that come posed to them and to their own families, they are harassed on the streets. And aside from the harassment, they they see the violent behaviors of police officers. Recently, Afghan police officers have been treating them very harshly after Vice President Amrullah Saleh has given authority to the police officers to use whatever type of force is necessary to control the citizens. Um, just about a few weeks ago, by a uh, Minister of Interior uh, had stated that uh, a journalist had asked, um, we are afraid for our lives, we need security. And the minister responded saying, we'll stay home if you don't need to continue your job because we cannot uphold the security of each and every individual bulletproof vehicles. This type of management or governance that they're pressing on the civilians is very much like what the Taliban used to do in some senses. So one of my members had mentioned that I think the Taliban are coming and I have a a strong understanding of it. It's only because the government is now preparing us by the way the Afghan policemen are treating us. So let's mix all of this together. I don't think anything stands out more than just how depressing the environment is. I think that uh, debts have become a number to publics and to governments. I think the international community is quite fed up with what's happening in Afghanistan, and they they are just trying to patch up the talks in Doha and leave the rest of the responsibility to Afghans, which I think is quite threatening to the security environment of the whole nations, the whole regional nations and in the international community. My concern poses here that forcing a peace agreement in Doha and not really looking at the issues that are happening in the country and providing a proper reintegration program for the insurgents to come in is going to continue to provide an environment of violence to the Afghans. Miriam, your voice is also cutting off. Perhaps there's a an issue with the internet today in Afghanistan. But in case if there's anything can be done about that, that would be great. Uh, let me bring you back, uh, Mujib. When I asked my earlier question to both uh, Miriam and Alia, what I had in mind is that there are so many journalists in Afghanistan. 
why these people were the target? I mean, I, I guess my question might be sounding silly to you. Just, just wondered. I mean, is there anything that makes these people stand out among the crowd of journalists in Afghanistan? Mujib? So, Mujib, are you with us? I think he has some issue with the internet. So, Ali, go ahead. So, Mujib can, of course, respond to this probably better than I can. But one of the things that does many of the journalists do have in common that were targeted is either their work, you know, in civil society as well as their journalism work, but also that many of them did contribute to international outlets. And many of them were reporting, all of them were reporting on the local situation, local politics, local crimes, etc. So they were not journalists who were necessarily shying away from doing critical reporting. And that, unfortunately, made them a target. And just to round that out... um, Many of them had received threats, and I'm sure Mujib can speak to this as well of, you know, why were they reporting certain things? Why were they continuing to work with international outlets? Why were they giving Afghanistan a bad name? Hmm. So these are some of the threads that do tie all these journalists together, even though it may seem like, you know, they work in many different parts of the country. Hmm. I think that the strategy of uh, killings has only changed due to publicity and installing fear in the community. It's not only journalists that have been a target. Yeah, Miriam, certainly we are. Miriam, certainly we are going to talk about the greater civil society, how they are being affected by this. But at this stage, about the media, what we were talking about with uh, Alia is like: is there any parallels that we can draw between these journalists who are killed? And of course, certainly there are parallels the way these attacks are uh, carried out. I mean, it looks like there is some sophistication involved the way these attacks are planned. The only sophistication that are applied is in the type of materials that they're using to start attacking or having rockets here. About three, four weeks ago when the rocket was launched, it was on accident. It landed on one of Tolo's uh, anchors, and he wasn't reporting on much. He was just an anchor presenter on Tolo, but the the amount of publicity that the insurgents were receiving continued for about six weeks. Targeting journalists is a main method to receive publicity. It has nothing to do on where they report, how they're reporting, the type of reports that they present. No, I think it's just the amount of credibility and the fear that they impose within the community. Mm. I think Mujib is not on the call. Michael, would you like to jump in on this question? I mean, how do you see it? I think that the one of the, the the problems here is that there's there's so many bad actors uh, in the mix when it comes not only to the these attacks on journalists but more broadly in civil society, which I guess we'll talk about later. I think that you know perhaps the Taliban would appear to be a top candidate for carrying out many of these attacks simply because you know you look at uh, who some of these journalists are and, and and what they're doing, and you know they represent the types of things, the types of principles and ideas that um, the Taliban is opposed to. And particularly when it comes to, you know, a female journalist getting targeted, you know, the the likes of of Islamic State, ISIS, certainly has an interest in in carrying out some of these attacks, but not claiming them so that everyone can blame the Taliban, its its main rival. And then, of course, there's the more murky and tricky issue of of state involvement, uh, government involvement. And, and, you know, as Mariam said, um, very troubling that um, these targeted folks or those that are threatened by these attacks are not getting the type of security that they should should be getting, which I think is 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 very troubling. 
So it's really hard to uh, to make sense of this. But certainly the fact that you've had an upsurge in these attacks on journalists over such a, a relatively small period, I think we're talking about, what, five or six journalists killed since November mm-hmm. in Afghanistan? That's probably the highest number in the world, and Alia could, could correct me. But... Um, you know, the sheer frequency uh, of this is, is such that one could understand why all journalists in, in Afghanistan, including your colleagues, Mohammed, are so worried about what could happen to them next. Yeah, they are. They are indeed very much worried. I'm not at liberty to discuss needy-gritty details of that. In fact, there's a fear around in Afghanistan. Ali, as Michael just hinted, the type of targeted killing we are seeing in Afghanistan involving media, are we seeing this search only in Afghanistan or it is generally a a bad year for journalists. I mean, I was looking into your last report, I guess last year in 2020, there were 53 journalists killed throughout the world and five of them was in Afghanistan. So is there any parallels you can draw between what is happening with the media in Afghanistan in terms of these targeted killings and the world? You're right. Last year, Mexico and Afghanistan were the top countries where journalists were killed in retaliation for their work. And unfortunately, you know, what we're seeing is in Afghanistan, at least we saw an uptick as compared to the year before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, around the world, there's obviously, you know, numbers of different factors. Part of it was additional targeted killings. And definitely an increase in um, killings from the year prior. But at the same time, you know, we may have seen not as many as typical because of COVID-related restrictions, fewer people moving around, fewer people able to report in the field as they typically would. Hmm. As we earlier hinted a couple of times, besides journalists, the whole civil society has been in a hot uh, water lately. As I mentioned in my opening, l- lawyers are the target. Yeah. So what what's really happening in a bigger picture? Why it is happening now? What kind of impact it is having on society and who appears to be benefiting from these attacks? So let's continue the conversation talking about these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the FPAC File podcast. I'm joined by Mujib Khilwatkar, Chief Executive Officer of NAE, an Afghan NGO supporting open media. Mujib is joining us or trying to join us from Kabul. Alia Iftikhar, Senior Asia Researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Alia is joining us from New York. Mariam Wardek, journalist and the head of the Women Advocacy Initiative called Her Afghanistan. Uh, Mariam is joining us from Kabul today. And Michael Kugelman, Senior South Asia Fellow and the Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Asia programs in Washington, D.C. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the APAC File podcast and Ready for Your Freedom Liberties media manager here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the growing targeted killings in Afghanistan. Miriam, since you want to leave us earlier, so let me start with you here. So the victims are not only journalists, as you were saying earlier. The growing number of activists, lawyers, even doctors are being targeted. And I guess uh, yesterday a court worker was shot dead in eastern Afghanistan, these are not a random killings, I guess, especially at this timing. So what's happening and why it's happening now? The killings come at a time where the public faces uncertain future, even if the government and the Taliban 
come to some sort of agreement. Now, all of these people that are being targeted, if they're targeted by insurgents, it's either because they've uncovered corruption or exposed human rights abuses and received attention for it. Now, many of the other ones where they're target killings, it's either for a personal matter or a vengeance. And usually there's multiple layers that are involved in this. I have been a victim of one myself where my uncle, who is named General Zalmay Wardak, was one of the top advocates, military advocates, speaking on military issues, was found dead. And nobody, not even in the government, could figure out who claimed responsibilities, although that there was a camera right on the middle, right in front of his street. There's multiple layers that are involved here. There insurgents are not these players that are only playing on the other side of uh, the battlefield. They have infiltrated many of the government institutions. They are playing multiple roles, and we don't know who is who. But but they the were, they, Miriam, they were there like like in in previous years too. I mean, we we are talking about sort of uh, uptick recently in terms of these types of targeted killings. I mean, what has changed that we don't know? It's just a, a psychological fair, a shift in psychological warfare. Before they would, now that you have to also understand the reduction of the troops, the number of patrols that leave international troops that are on the road are fewer. So how much attention can insurgents get when they attach some sort of weapon onto their vehicles? Very little, because now when they're attacking, they're attacking the Afghan National Army or Afghan National Police. But if they attack some sort of civilian that has uncovered a major story, then they're going to receive free publicity for about six weeks in the media. Mm. Uh, You have to think about their public perception. mm. They want to seem powerful. They want to make the government seem illegitimate. They want to seem that they are the ones that can bring harm and they're the ones that can bring peace and they're the ones can, that can br- take the country forward. That is the mind, the mind game behind it all. So from that perspective, Mariam, is there any particular profession which is more in the line of fire than the others? I think for right now, uh, for the next 120 days, women, women are the target. And we have to take extra precautionary measures wherever we go. Women are first. After men, it's journalists. Because when journalists hurt, then they want to honor their colleagues. And what do they do when they honor their colleagues? They share their stories. They talk about them. They give them attention on air. And when you give them attention, you have to address the cause of death. And when the cause of death is an insurgent, that's where the insurgent gets its publicity. I think the number one world leader who handled this all very well was uh, our female, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking out right now, where we had that massacre. Michael, please jump in here. I think you know who I'm talking about. I completely forgot about her name, where she did not mention any of the killer's names. Unfortunately, in our media community, we don't apply those type of methodologies and continue ISIS did it, Taliban did it. And when you see these families who have one individual who are working in sandwich families not be able to live that live day day by day and already internally displaced within the country, they're going to pull back and they're going to continue to accept whatever type of ruling comes next. And if the ruling is the Taliban, they're going to be okay with it because they want the violence to end. 
Mm. Maryam, also, before you uh, leave us, um, one more related question. So the killing is the, of course, kind of end of the road for one person in this world. But besides the killing, do you also see rise or the uptick in the intimidations or harassments? Also, are you seeing any change in the way those tactics are being carried out? The street harassment and the abuse that it takes on is quite uh, strong right now in Afghanistan. The intimidation level has increased three times as much. And it has a lot to do with the fact that the international community is stepping away. And when they step away, there's less monitoring on the Afghan, Afghan people. And when there's less monitoring, they behave as how they wish. Whether that is Afghan national police, whether is that that's a Afghan civilian, it's causing um, a disconcern and it's causing oppression. The strange problem, at least talking about these targeted killings, are it looks like to me that many of those attacks are not claimed. The attacks, especially those, those targeted killings that I'm talking about, is that strange to you? I don't think it's strange. I think that if the Afghan Taliban are the ones who are committing these acts, they don't want to take responsibility because of how tough it will be on them when they are in Doha. ISIS claims all most of the uh, target killings that they attempt. There's also a criminology aspect to it. Criminality has increased, has tripled in the past several months. And most of the target killings are vengeance on a personal behalf. There was one female journalist who ha- was murdered, Mina Mangal, if you remember, mm. about three years ago. Right. And when she was killed, the reporters and the government officers said that this was a family issue. So mm. there is so many different facets to target killings. It's very hard for us to identify which had attempted it mm. and, and at one point at one place i can't really t- push the afghan government because right now they're fighting so many fronts whether it's afghan taliban isis there's 17 other active terrorist groups now the increase in criminality has really stretched all of the afghan national security forces thin Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Michael, Alia, you, you you guys uh, jump in whenever you would like to. My next question is then, as Miriam was talking about, there are so many groups involved with the, uh, in this in this harassment, intimidation, or the killings, and there might be so many different motives behind them. Mujib, from your perspective, from your point of view, who's behind it? I mean, uh, there's a certainly an uptick. So someone must be doing it. From your perspective, who's that uh, actors who might be responsible for bulk of those those attacks uh i think uh, you know better that no one is claiming that they do right but uh, from my understanding it is a group of people that they could be appeared everywhere at the government between taliban with the daesh and isis and even with none of these named groups It is a kind of ideology that is the perpetrator of this kind of target killings. But it is very important that who is not doing the responsibility that prevent this kind of attack, mm. it is the government of Afghanistan. So at the end of the day, the responsibility goes to the government of Afghanistan. I'm sure you are aware that just one hour ago, there was an attack in mm. Ghor mm. where provincial council member was killed. And the government says he was the person who killed Aymak uh, two weeks back. So it is not only so-called Taliban. It's a kind of ideology that Taliban is getting the best benefit of it and responsibility goes to the government 
of Afghanistan because of their failure to secure the situation for media and for civil society people. Okay, I have two questions stemmed from what you just said, Mujib. Since you are back, let me benefit from your presence. So first, you said a, there is an ideology driving these search. What ideology are we talking about? And also you put some blame on authorities that they are not properly responding to these attacks. So has there anything changed the way authorities have been reacting to those those attacks? And was there any tipping point in this? First of all, the ideology, I think it is Talibanism. Hmm. Talibanism is an ideology which is opposing freedom of expression, human rights, civil society and citizens' rights. This ideology could be carried out by different people, group of people, including that they are in the government, that they are with the Taliban, that they are with ISIS or Daesh. The government is not doing anything. As Mariam said that in a meeting that I was there also, Minister of Interior said, bring weapon by weapon, I could give you the certificate that to, that you could use it. If you don't have the money, shut up your office and go and sit at home. It means that the government of Afghanistan is somehow forgetting what their obligations are. Where this kind of situation comes in, when lots of people have been killed, lots of governmental people have been killed to arrest at least 5,000 Taliban, and then they were freed in a day, then there is no encouragement for those who are doing their obligation, their responsibility to save the situation for the people, to secure the situation for the people. So there is not a kind of will now among the people inside the government to do so. That's why the Minister of Interior says that do this, otherwise shut up your office and close your office and go sit at home. So I think this is the kind of change that the so-called peace process brought in the in the sector, especially in, in security sector. Lots of people have been killed. They arrested 5,000 people. Then in a one in one night, they freed 5,000 people and they put that much families that they lost their uh, members just aside. This is the way that the, it, 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 it seems to me. That's kind of a very interesting point, uh, Mujib, you brought in. I don't know what to say, but let, let me say this, though. Uh, why would authorities behave the way you say they are behaving? It sounds to me that either they are acting irresponsibly or some something is tying their hand. I mean, uh, how you explain this change in motivation? I think, first of all, the kind of steps for the peace process imposed to the government of Afghanistan, Mm. imposed to the people of Afghanistan. It was just a kind of dictate, dictation from outside of Afghanistan to do this, otherwise to do this. Then the the, uh, elites, the political elites, the people who are key officials in the government, just find a way to use this kind of dictations for their own benefits, to prolong their uh, authorities, to prolong their offices, their existence at the offices, and to use for their personal benefits. So they did this. They dealt with the uh, United States. I mean, that, that group that uh, on behalf of United States work on peace process in Afghanistan and other international allies. They used this for their own benefits and dealt with this. Mm. And then at the executive body of the government, for example, the soldiers, the officers, when they say the minister is doing this, the president is doing this, the uh, vice president is doing this. 
then they say, so why I put my life in danger for something that at the end of the day it would be zero? Mm. This is this is the way it, it defines uh, it, the situation defines to me. Wow, I admire the unfiltered views coming out of Kabul today. Uh, is Mariam still with us? She's left. Okay, so and now, Michael, we are talking about a big picture politics here. So, so whenever we talk about the peace process, the story gets very local to us in Washington, D.C. And D.C. has been in the middle of transition for some time. And in a few days, we will have a new government. So, Michael, so what does this change in Washington means to this uh, fragile environment in Afghanistan? I think that everyone uh, in Afghanistan, and certainly the uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban, uh, those involved in the intra-Afghan dialogue, are very curious to see how the incoming administration deals with everything in Afghanistan. And so far, the the Biden team has said very little about Afghanistan, very little. Uh, Jake Sullivan, who's going to be the national security advisor, mm. you know, he's made a few boilerplate public statements about how there's a peace process in play, and we need to support that. But I, I do think that Afghanistan may be a foreign policy priority for the incoming administration, but it will not be a top priority, at least initially. And I don't necessarily think this administration is going to invest tremendous amounts of time engaging in shuttle diplomacy and trying to do whatever is possible to rein in this violence and get the peace process moving. Certainly, it's going to look into what it can do, but I think that its patience uh, could be limited in, in that regard. Now, since this is an administration that claims to want to have a big focus on rights and, and democracy and, and so on and so forth, that suggests that at the least it should take a very significant uh, a very considerable interest in this rash of target killings and be willing to put more pressure on the government in Afghanistan to, at the very least, ensure that people get the security that they deserve. Mm. But uh, you know, ultimately, this the, Washington's hands are tied as well, especially since you know we really don't know who is behind these attacks, and there could be multiple actors behind them. And I think that it actually makes sense that these attacks are not claimed. I think that there's a strategic advantage for whoever is behind these attacks for not claiming them, because that makes people more scared. If you know who's behind the attacks, it's easier to try to get to the bottom of what's going on by cracking down on the, on the perpetrators. But, you know, of course, if you don't know who's behind them, if there's several possibilities, you don't even know where to start, yeah. that makes the government look bad, and uh, it just makes everyone all the more uncomfortable. So mm. it breaks my heart as, as someone yeah. who's followed Afghanistan for so many years and, and um, you know, knows that civil society is, is a brave one in Afghanistan. Mm. There's so much that it's tried to do in the post-Taliban era mm. to um, carve out free speech and, and, and so yeah, on and so yeah, forth. Yeah. And no, on, against those progress. It's yeah, on, on that point, the other day I was talking to one, to one of my colleagues and he was uh, saying to me, the uh, victims are generally, uh, are the members of the active portion of the society and these attacks are pushing them to step back or in the case of journalists, possibly uh, leading them to some sort of self-censorship, uh, which would be really, really unfortunate. So in terms of uh, the confusion behind who might be carrying out these attacks, what, from your perspective, what appears to be their ultimate goal? I think that if we assume that the Taliban is behind at least some of these um, attacks, which I imagine they are, I think the idea here could be to send a strong message 
to everyone, despite what it may say publicly, and it's on the record comments, mm. the Taliban is not going to compromise on the vision it has for Afghanistan post-settlement, that um, you know, there will be limitations to women's rights, freedom of speech, democracy, the electoral process. And if that's true, that's very scary. That's very disturbing. But, you know, as I said before, so many of these people getting attacked represent the types of principles and ideals that the Taliban opposes, right? Democracy, women's rights, uh, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it, now, of course, given that the Taliban hasn't claimed these attacks it's sort of hard for people to make that conclusion that this is the Taliban trying to send these messages if the Taliban's not claiming them. But I think there's a pretty considerable consensus that the Taliban or elements of it, whether the Haqqanis or others, are behind at least some of these attacks. Right. You know, the type of people uh, are being affected also tells us to some extent uh, the motivation of attackers there. I mean, on the receiving end, though, uh, Mujib, I'm so happy that your uh, connection is restored. It's really great to have you back. Mujib, so how this surge is affecting the society? Uh, first of all, if I wanted to speak about the, the sector, the media and civil society, mm. today I have heard that most of media managers are considering uh, whether to stay in Afghanistan or not. Mm. It was said about self-censorship. I think it started previously here because of that issue. At the end of the day, people yeah. in recent 19 years, they settled themselves with information, with media, with freedom of expression. And suddenly you take everything from them. Then they are in the middle of nowhere. So people are, their, their access to information rights is violated. Their freedom of expression rights is violated. Their human rights is violated. Then this brings a situation for the two sides of the negotiation tables to deal with anything they want. There shouldn't be, there will not be any red lines for them, whether it is human rights, whether it is achievement of 19 years, whether it is the perpetrators of mass killing, whether it is the perpetrators of, of uh, journalists killing, human rights uh, defenders killing, anything, they could deal with it. And then at the end of the day, it is people that they suffer from this, not uh, Afghanistan government and not Taliban. Mm -hmm. I just uh, arrived from Doha and I spoke with... uh, some of the uh, negotiation team members of Taliban as well as of the government. Look at this target killing what brings to Taliban. They says, are you trying to continue with the government, with the current government, that they never secure even you wow. uh, to work safely in the middle of Kabul city? What kind of government you're defending of? What kind of system you're defending of? Republic, what br- brings to you? So at the end of the day, this Taliban that could benefit of it on the, the negotiation table. This is the main problem. And the government of Afghanistan mm. never ever thinks about this. Mm. Now, these are very bold and very important points. Mujib, thank you very much, Michael. You have another commitment. I know we are going to end the discussion very shortly. But before you leave, Michael, given the point raised by Mujib, so what can be really done about that? I mean, as a consequences of this uptick, he mentioned several very important points, one being like people might be relocating from Afghanistan to somewhere outside, some other consequences that he mentioned. So what can be done about this? 
Yeah, I think that this concern about uh, those leaving, those that have the ability and the resources to leave, is very concerning because this is a story we've heard about Afghanistan for so many years. Uh, you know, the the the, rain, the brain drain issue, or whatever you want to call it. You know, the best and the brightest and the bravest having to leave ultimately, and this is really quite tragic. You know, go back to what I said before. I think there's only limited things that the international community can do. You know, especially as the if the drawdown, if the NATO drawdown continues apace. I think it's going to be difficult to, or it would be hard to believe that the international community would continue to be engaged on deep levels on the ground to try to figure out how to bring this violence under control. Ultimately, it comes down to, to the Afghan state, to the Afghan government. Um, to try to work things out. And, you know, certainly there's been very strong statements from Ambassador Khalilzad, from uh, the U.S. ambassador in Afghanistan, and many others condemning this violence relentlessly. But obviously doing that is is not going to be, um, is not going to be enough. Uh, the only hope is that eventually the inter-Afghan dialogue will get to a point where, well, it'll make enough progress where there are commitments for violence reductions. And, and hopefully if that starts to happen, if you start to have the violence go down on some levels, even if modestly, that that could you know, at least bring a bit of, uh, a bit of relief. But mm. if these targets killings are a whole separate issue unrelated to, to, the, to the peace process and so on, then obviously that, that makes it all the more difficult. Let me end the discussion with, uh, with the last two points here, one uh, to Alia and the other to Mujib. Alia, first to you. So what is your nightmare scenario as Afghanistan is going through this? Well, I certainly hope we don't get there. I think, you know, unfortunately, we're already dealing with a bad scenario in which there is an overwhelming climate of fear in which we've seen numerous journalists, numerous civil society actors being targeted at a rapid rate in the past few months. And it's, of course, leading to a feeling of instability. There are journalists who have worked there for years, done really incredible work and continue to do really courageous work that are, you know, thinking about self-censoring, thinking about their own safety, thinking about whether or not they need to leave the country. And that is already, you know, a really terrible uh, scenario. And I would hope that, you know, in the peace process and in the negotiations, there can be some understanding that journalists and the press need to be allowed to do their work without any fear of retribution, without any fear of retaliation for the country to really be able to move forward. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone who can do anything to address this issue? I think journalists and civil society actors are doing their level best that they can given their circumstances now it is up to you know the major players in the country those involved in the peace process in the negotiations and the government really to ensure their citizen safety to ensure every civilian safety in afghanistan and you know i don't and i think there needs to be more done in terms of that and also moving towards accountability and justice and really bringing those behind these recent attacks and all attacks against journalists to account Mm. So last point, Mujib. First thing is like, how do you see your own future in the country in the context of what's going on these days? And if if there is anyone in the world who can do anything about it, who that person would be or the, the government would be and what would be your um, request to them? 
first of all, the future, it depends to lots of things. For example, if uh, NATO and United States leaves uh, um, next year, then the situation would be a nightmare <laughs> and a catastrophe <laughs> would be happening by the leaving or by withdrawal of international forces in, in Afghanistan. But if they are rescheduling their withdrawal, then it will change a little bit the situation. The Just today I have heard from one of the diplomats from the Foreign Ministry of Afghanistan that a new kind of uh, coalition will be combined and will be made out of this NATO and other countries, mainly Europeans and some of Islamic countries, to fill the gap when withdrawal is happening. I think it's also a good news if uh, it was not just an idea mm-hmm. and it is a plan. Then I'm sure that uh, if this kind of scenario is coming in, then the future, if it is not too bright, it would be, wouldn't be a, a nightmare. What could be done and by who? I think uh, now that the United States is a main player for peace process in Afghanistan, I'm sure they could impose some or they could put pressure in some instance on Taliban that they could be accountable for this kind of thing. At the same time, the United States and the NATO and the international community are they're paying almost all budget of Afghanistan, especially the military budget. They could conditionalize this money, and one of the conditions could be uh, saving the life of citizens and especially of those who are working as a journalist or uh, as a human rights defenders. Okay. Um, I think, uh, Mujib, you cleverly dodged my other question. I mean, maybe we don't have time to expand the discussion on that. Okay. With this, uh, let's end the conversation here. Thank you very much, uh, Mujib Khilwatkar, Chief Executive Officer of NAE, an Afghan NGO supporting open media. Uh, Mujib was joining us from Kabul today. Ali Aftukhar, Senior Asia Researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Ali was joining uh, us from New York. Maria Mwardek, journalist and the head of the Women Advocacy Initiative called Her Afghanistan. Uh, Mariam was joining us from Kabul and Michael Kugelman, Senior South Asia Fellow and the Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Asia Programs in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much, uh, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, Ready Free Your Freedom Liberties Media Manager and host of the APAC File, a joint podcast series of Ready Free Your Freedom Liberty and the Wilson Center. Please join us in two weeks. Until then, bye-bye.